stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. I'll begin in verse 8 this morning. We looked at verses 8. We looked at, starting in verse 1, and we kind of made it through verse 20 or so uh, last week. But we're going to pick up in verse 8 this morning. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. He sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out of the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Ataliah. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. You may be seated. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for this this moment we have together and to, to look at your word. We are grateful to you for the gospel. We pray that you would allow us to be strengthened as we look at your word together and allow us to be equipped to strengthen one another to be involved in the lives of your saints, strengthening them, calling them to look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, let's, let's just dive in here and kind of review a little bit of what we began last week as we began looking at chapter 14. We begin chapter 14, and we're going to end chapter 14 with the uh, with the report of the disciples to the, the church in Antioch where they began. And so it, it took us a couple of chapters to get through the 
first missionary journey. It's going to take us a, a couple of verses just for them to make that return journey. But let's, let's remember the main idea that we began looking at last week and change the wording a little bit here. But remember this, our, our ultimate goal as ministers of the gospel, our ultimate goal is those who've been called by God to be ambassadors of the good news, ministers of the gospel, our ultimate goal is neither to avoid abuse or pursue praise, but instead our ultimate goal is to strengthen the souls of the saints. As we're in ministry, whether it be ministry from here on a pulpit or ministry in the lives of our parents or our siblings or our, our friends at school or the, the people on our athletic team, wherever God has placed us in ministry, our, our goal is not to avoid abuse from the people we're trying to minister to, although that's nice. Our ultimate goal isn't to pursue praise, although that's nice. Our ultimate goal and our overriding objective that, that causes other things just to decrease to nothing, our ultimate goal is that God would be glorified as we strengthen the souls of his saints. That's what we're trying to accomplish, and that's what Paul and Barnabas are remaining faithful to in these verses. Remember last week that the first point we looked at is that the abuse of God's ministers distorts the gospel message. We saw that as they arrive in Iconium, there's this attempt, it says in verse 2, by the unbelieving Jews to stir up the Gentiles and poison their minds, literally harm the souls of those who are listening to Paul and Barnabas. And here's the principle that we considered last week. People are going to attempt to poison others against you and make your ministry hard in order to undermine the truth of the gospel. So as you are faithful to do what God has called you to do, it's inevitable that there are going to be those who attempt to, to, to poison others against you, ultimately for the purpose of distorting the gospel message. And we talked about a couple of implications there. We talked about wanting to be careful not to be the people who are poisoning others against the work that God is doing. And we also, and I, I think this is so important for us to consider, we also talked about how as that happens, we need to not get distracted and we need to trust God to defend his own name. Remember, we, we talked about Zechariah in Zechariah 13.2. In, in Zechariah 13.2, it talks about how the names of the idols are going to be cut off. And then we read Zechariah 14.9. It says, the Lord will be king over all the earth. This is, this is where all of human history is headed, right? The, the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. At, at the end of the day, in, into eternity, there's going to be one name left standing. And it's not your name, and it's certainly not my name. It's God's name. And so we don't enjoy persecution. We don't enjoy people saying bad things about us. But, but ultimately, that's, that's not our concern. We recognize that God's name is going to triumph, and, and that's the name that we want to be exalting and praising. Here's the second point we looked at. We began to look at this last week and didn't finish it. Number two, uh, the worship of God's ministers also distorts the gospel message. The worship of, of ministers, instead of worshiping God, when we worship and excessively praise those who are proclaiming the gospel to us, we also distort the gospel. There seems to be here in verses 8 through 20, 
there's a, a, uh, seems to be a, a positive response, but this also undermines the gospel message. So verses 8 through 10, you have this healing of this man. He hears the gospel message, and Paul sees it. He believes it. And so to confirm the validity of this man's faith, Paul and Barnabas heal him. He's, he's healed just as, uh, and God works this miracle just as he did in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, those, those regions. Now he's also, validating, he's also validating the gospel that's being proclaimed to the Gentiles. And in verses 11 through 13, that the Gentiles respond by attempting to worship, literally worship and offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. And you see their response there in verse 14, right? They hear about this, and, and it's, it's a big deal. They tear their garments. This is very distressing to them, that the people have absolutely missed the purpose of this miracle. They, instead of worshiping God, they're worshiping his ministers. And so they, they tear their garments, and they rush out in the crowd, and they try to restrain them, and they proclaim the gospel message here in verses 15 through 17. Look, why are you doing these things, verse 15? We're also men of, of like nature. We're like you. And we're bringing you good news that you would turn from these vain things to a living God. And they describe who God is. And so Paul and Barnabas, remember we talked about this last week. They're coming to them saying, look, we're, we're just like you. And the reason we've come is to turn you from these, these vain things, worship of idols and worship of men, worship of these false gods, little g gods. And we're, we're calling you to turn from these things and to worship the living God. This is the God who, who has left a witness of himself. And he talks about the common grace that God has given of, of giving people good things. And now he's given his son, Jesus, and they're proclaiming the gospel. And they're saying, look, don't worship us. That's totally missing the message. We want to turn you to the true living God. And the people respond by being barely restrained from offering these sacrifices. And ultimately, the crowds turn on them and Paul is stoned, left for dead, and yet Paul and Barnabas continue in, in the ministry. Now, here's the principle that we looked at last week. Here's the principle. People, sadly and amazingly, would rather create a God out of a man, little g, God. People would rather create a God out of a man than worship God as God. It's far easier for me to, to take another human being and, and give them higher preference than I should than it is to, to begin to even recognize the otherness of God and worship him as God. It's, it's far more comforting for me to, to create my own God out of another person to give them excessive praise and, and recognition than it is to contemplate my absolute submission that is, that is owed to Yahweh God the God of gods. Now, let's, let's think of a couple implications of this, this principle, a couple applications as we think about us as, as ministers. Here, here's the first thing I would encourage you with. Number one, we need to build our ministry on the authority of God's word. As we engage in ministry, and as we think about the ministries that we're involved in, we need to, to build those ministries on the authority of God's word and, and not our personality or, or the personalities of other people. This, uh, this past week, I was, I was talking with, with a, a person and, 
and I think it's dangerous. I, we could probably all think of specific examples where we've talked with someone and, and been involved in a relationship with, with someone and hear them talking about their pastor or some sort of ministry leader, and we've, we've been a little uncomfortable maybe <laughs> about the, the level of, of respect they have for them. Like it's, it's, it's bordering beyond respect to, to something else, right? Anyway, I was, I was talking with this pastor this past week at this conference. I was, I was at an amazing conference last week. It was phenomenal. Okay. It was really, really good. It was really good. But I was talking with a pastor at this conference, and uh, he was talking to me about, about their, the church that he was involved in. And it's, it's a large church, five, 7,000 people, so a little bigger than us, and uh, spread out over five campuses, multi-site deal, and, and we were talking about this. And, and, and honestly, I believe... That I believe that the, the rise of multi-site churches is is driven at least in part, not, not completely not all the time, but but the, the rise of multi-site churches over the last few decades, I think, is risen uh, is driven in part by an unhealthy view of, of pastors and, and what the role of a pastor is. In other words, a, a pastor is supposed to be a shepherd. A pastor is supposed to be someone who's in, involved in the lives of the people to whom he's ministering to help them understand God's word and, and to sacrificially care for them. That's the role of a pastor elder. And, and we've, we've, we've failed to understand that instead in our, our culture oftentimes over the last 20, 30 years, we've begun to think that a, a pastor is a personality. And so we want to expand that personality over multiple campuses and to, to allow people to have access to that personality to, to grow a ministry. And I, I think that's just incredibly dangerous. So I was talking to this, this pastor at this conference, and he was talking about how they have five, 7,000 people, 5,000 to 7,000 people over these five campuses. And he said, yeah, it's just not healthy. And, and we're recognizing that. Our pastor is recognizing that. We're, we're spinning off these, these churches into these, these individual individual churches instead of this multi-site corporation type thing, right? I, I think that's healthy. I think that's a good move on the part of that church. See, we want to make sure, we want to be careful, e- even unintentionally, to build our ministry on anything other than God's Word. Our, our authority for ministry is God's Word. Now you say, what does that mean that God's Word is authoritative? Here's how Wayne Gruden puts it. He says, the authority of Scripture, when we say that Scripture is our authority, what does that mean? It means that all the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God himself. And so as we think about the question, what do we do as a church, what do we do in the individual ministries that God has called us to as ministers of the gospel, we first and foremost say what? Well, what does God's word tell us to do? And then when we find out what God's word tells us to do, what do we do? We do that. It's simple in so many ways. We make it very complicated at at times. There's no higher authority for the believer than God's word. We talked a few months ago in our evening service about Carl Truman's aptly titled book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. You and I have reached a, a point in our culture's development where there is no higher authority than the self. And that is a dangerous place for us to be as a culture. 
And it's a dangerous place for you and I as, as people in that culture because we can be tempted to think the same way. You know how there's sometimes just phrases in the culture that, that sometimes you're like, okay, that's silly, they can kind of roll off your back. And then sometimes there's some, some phrases that just, just make your skin crawl. There's a phrase like that in our culture right now that it just, it just it's hard to hear. It's a, it's a phrase, uh, well, I got to speak your truth. That phrase, speak your truth. What? I, I don't even, what's even mean, right? I, I Google searched it and, and try to see the, the history of the phrase. It, it appeared in the early 1900s, I think like the, like the 1910s or something. And then in the 50s, it, it made this, made this little, little blip. Uh, and then, and then the millennium hit and it just went whoosh. Way up. It's appearing in all, all sorts of places. Speak your truth. In other words, um, each person individually has the ability to, to, to create their own truth. And um, I love you, but I don't care about your truth, right? I don't, I don't care what you think the truth is if, if it's just your own perception of, of how sh- reality should be. Now, I have blinders in, in my life. I need to hear you tell me about the truth, and perhaps there's some things I'm missing, but I, I don't need you to speak your truth to me, right? I don't care about your intuition or how you feel like truth should be. Tell me about God's word. And that's how we respond as a church in our ministries. Scripture determines the goal, determines the boundaries of our ministry. As a parent, what's the phrase that's sometimes tempting for us to say in the ministry to our children? Well, our kids ask us a question, you know, why this and why that? And what's the temptation to respond? Oh, because I say so. Let me speak my truth to you. <laughs> Who cares, right? Now, as our kids come to us, we, we can say, look, the reason I'm telling you this is because God and his sovereign authority and his love for you has given me as your parent, and you have the joy of now learning to respond to my authority, and, and uh, that's a long way of saying because I told you so. Um, but ultimately, what are we doing? Ultimately, we're saying, look, the reason we have these rules as a parent, the reason God has called me to do this in your life, and it, it's, because, it's because of God's word. And here's how we're applying God's word in our family. It's not just some arbitrary truth that I've decided to proclaim to you. We build our ministry on the authority of God's word, and our children need to see that. The people we minister to need to see that. We need to see that in the people we've, that God is calling to minister to us. Here's the second thing I would encourage you with as we think about this principle. We need to point people We need to point people to the power found only through faith in Jesus Christ. There is a real danger. Let me say it again. We need to point people to the power found only through faith in Jesus Christ. There is a real danger that as God begins to do work in the ministries in which he has placed us, that we will begin to believe the lie that we somehow had something to do with it in and of ourselves. Here, Paul and Barnabas have, have seen this man who's paralyzed be, begin to walk. A man who was, able, who was crippled, but now he's able to, to walk. And, and, and people think, well, well, maybe they had something to do with this. And, and what, does Paul, what do Paul and Barnabas say? Look, we're of like nature with you. And so as we minister to people, what do we need to constantly be saying? We are of the same nature as you. And the things you see God doing in and through you are not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ is doing in you and through you. It's a goal of all biblical ministry. Paul would would say to the Galatians, so 
in, in the book of Galatians to the same people that he's ministering to here, they would later be tempted to pursue Judaism and, and to, become, to, to become circumcised and follow the Jewish law. They become Christians. The same people that he's ministering to in Acts 14, it's the same people he writes the book of Galatians to. And in Galatians 3, he, what does he call them? He says, you're, you're foolish. Who has bewitched you? Why would you go, why, you know, having seen the power of faith in Jesus Christ, why would you, why would you pursue this, this legalistic garbage? He would say in Galatians 3, toward the end of the chapter, in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. As many of you were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. Point people to the power that's found only through faith in Jesus Christ. If we are not careful to point people to Christ, one of, one of two things can happen. First, the people we minister to are being set up for soul-crushing disappointment as we fail them. If your children do not see that you are a person in need of the gospel, but, but think that you somehow are, are intrinsically able to, to do the things that God would call you to do, that in of yourself you have this internal power, they are going to be crushed as they see you fail. You're secondly, you're also setting yourself up for spiritual catastrophe. I read these, these very powerful words in an online article talking about failures of, of people in ministry and how, at times, those of us in ministry can begin to, you know, the, the expression, believe your own press clippings. For you younger people, there used to be this thing called the press. Anyway, uh, to believe your own Twitter account, I don't know how to, Instagram photos, to believe your own Instagram filters. No? Okay. Um, anyway, he, here's, what, here's what he writes as he's talking about the belief that these, these ministers had that, that um, they had somehow accomplished something in and of themselves. He says, evidences of, evidences of genuinely good things happening in ministry is no indicator of how you're doing personally before the Lord. It is entirely possible and perhaps even common for the Lord to bless your ministry, not because of your faithfulness, but in spite of your faithlessness. This should put to rest that dastardly assumption that God must be happy with us in light of all this good fruit, people coming to Christ, baptisms, marriages saved, sinful habits broken, conviction of sin, and the fruit of sanctification in individual lives of members, none of that is a sure sign that God is pleased with his under-shepherds. Those things are always tremendous mercies from God. And sometimes he grants them through pastors who are truly pious and godly, and sometimes he grants them through disqualified pastors whose hypocrisy will eventually catch up to them. Let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. That, that, that's another way of saying the same principle. We need to continue to point people to power that's only found through faith in Jesus Christ. Many of you... Many of you came up to me last week after we kind of introduced these two principles, and uh, some of you jokingly gave me too much praise, and some of you jokingly gave too much abuse. And it was very interesting to see who decided to go which route. I took notes, took notes. 
Now, I'm not suggesting, I'm not suggesting that what we do is we need to, we need to somehow uh, keep people in ministry humble by, by, you know, by, by telling them you know, hard truths or, or, or to discourage. But, but, but what I'm suggesting is, no matter what ministry you've been called to, pastor, teacher, parent, friend, care group leader, care group member, wherever you're ministering, what I would encourage is, is, with is that the people that we are in relationship with, that we're ministering to, don't need us to become their God, small g God. They need us to point them to the power that's found in Christ. There's a great phrase from the Reformation, simultaneously just and a sinner. In other words, simultaneously righteous and a sinner. Like we're, we're, we're people who have been justified by our faith in Jesus Christ and we have this new life and yet at the same time, we haven't been glorified yet. We, we still struggle with, with sin. You don't need a minister in your life who pretends to be perfect, whatever area of ministry that is. We, we need people who have struggled with sin and are finding victory not through themselves but through faith in Jesus Christ. Here's the, here's the last principle I want us to think about. We're going to spend some time here now on, on this, this third point, kind of unpacking these, these verses. The third thing is this. The discipleship by God's ministers strengthens the saints. So Paul and Barnabas, they're not distracted by abuse. We talked about that last week. They're not distracted by worship, which also distorts the gospel message. They focus on discipleship. And the discipleship by God's ministers strengthens the saints. Look at the text with me. Beginning in verse 21. So they've, they've made disciples there in Derby, And now we're going to see the trip in reverse. So again, the the first missionary journey started in chapter 13, and we've gone through two chapters on their outward journey. Now we're just going to take a couple of verses and do the trip in reverse. It says, it says they went to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. It says they returned to those regions. And remember, it's, it's Lystra in which Paul had recently been left dead. It's Iconium and Antioch where the people had come from in order to, to persecute them. And, and that, those are the exact places that they're going back. And as they go from place to place in this return ministry, they've seen people respond to the gospel message and become Christians, followers of the way. Now as they go back through, what are they doing? They're, they're strengthening them and establishing these local churches. They strengthen the disciples. Notice a, a couple things in the text. First, notice that they urge them to continue in the faith. And they give them a, a realistic view of discipleship. It says they're encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. What does that mean? It means that, that it's not going to be an, an easy process of, of discipleship. In fact, we think about Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, beginning in, let's see, let me begin in verse 18 of Romans 8. Paul says, well, let me give you verse 7. It says, if, if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So this is the reality for those of us who are now in Christ, that we, we live in a world in which tribulation and suffering are going to take place. In this hope we were saved, that this hope of salvation to come. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so this is Paul's call on, on those who, are, who he's going back and, and visiting on his return trip back, back to Antioch and uh, Syria. He's saying, look, this, th- this is the reality of, of the Christian life. It's a difficult life. We'll talk more about that in a second. Notice something else here. It says as they go, they're, they're talking to them about the nature of discipleship and a realistic view of what it looks like to, to be a follower of the way. Notice also that they appoint elders for every church. Verse 23, they'd appointed elders for them in every church. So each location in which there's an assembly, a community of faith, they appoint a a multitude of elders, a plurality of elders, not just one elder per church, I think the text is saying there, but, but each church has several elders. So I guess technically two or more, probably more than, than two. And then notice this, well, again, we'll talk more about that as we come to chapter 20 in the book of Acts, but notice also this, that ultimately, what do they do? What does the text tell us? It says, this is verse 23, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. And so as they're strengthening the souls of the saints, they're saying, look, here's what discipleship is going to look like. Here are some shepherds who are going to care for you. Now we're going to pray. We're going to fast. And we're going to trust you to, to the Lord. Think about where Paul is. And Barnabas, or where Paul and Barnabas are. They're in Lystra where Paul has been stoned. They're in Iconium where some, some Jews came to, to Lystra to, to stir up trouble. They're in Antioch where there was trouble. Paul is leaving believers in communities where he knows there's hostility to the gospel. And these new believers that he's invested his life in, he knows are going to encounter times of tribulation and persecution and suffering, and there's nothing he can do about it. And so what does he do? What does a good minister do? Okay, I I, I trust you to the Lord. I wish I could keep you safe. I wish I could keep your, your doctrine pure, your life pure, the, the, the good minister says, but, but I can't. So I'm going to trust you to the Lord. He has to trust these believers to the Lord, the same Lord in whom they believe for their salvation. And, and we're going to see that as we read the book of, you know, think about the book of Galatians next, next chapter as we're in Acts 15, that that they're going to struggle. Paul is going to need to continue to trust into the Lord, and we see that throughout the book of, of Galatians. What, what I love about this section is the simplicity of the task for us 
as we engage in the ministry of discipleship. It's simple. We can have a lot of ministries, we can have a lot of things we do, but, but ultimately our, our goal is very simple. We just want to strengthen the souls of the saints. We want to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. We want to prepare people to worship him forever. Here's the principle. Here's the principle. We'll think about some applications here. The principle is we, we urge people to walk the difficult road, road of discipleship while entrusting them to the care of the great shepherd. We're urging people, look, here's the difficult road of discipleship that God calls Christians to walk while we simultaneously just have to entrust them to the care of the great shepherd. Here are some things for us to think about as we think about this principle. Number number one, how, how do we do this? How do we strengthen the saints? Number one, we have to present a biblical view of the Christian life of discipleship. If we're going to to not be focused by abuse, we're not going to be distracted by abuse or praise, we're going to say, okay, I want to strengthen the souls of the saints, what does that mean? It means that as I engage in ministry to you, as you engage in ministry to others, we say, look, here's a a biblical view of the Christian life, of of discipleship. Here's what discipleship looks like. Now, when we say that we're disciples, we don't mean, look, here's your Here's your invitation to become a a member of some sort of social club. We're not saying that it's a choice you can make, like picking your favorite football team. Discipleship isn't like becoming a member of a church that's that's picking your, your favorite church to cheer for. We're not talking about just an adjective you put in front of what you really are. So I'm not just like a the life of discipleship isn't saying, well, I'm, I'm a Christian businessman or I'm a, a Christian athlete or I'm a, a Christian student as though the Christian was just an adjective that was put in front of the noun of what we really are. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a businessman and you know, I'm, I'm a Christian one or I'm a, I'm a student, I'm a Christian one. No, it's, it's not just some adjective we put in front of who we really are, but if, as we engage in calling people to discipleship and say, look, this is, this is what it means to be a Christian, we tell them, look, this is this is your identity now. What does the book of Acts tell us? It says that the people who are Christians are, are followers of the way. They, they enter into this path of discipleship saying, now th- this, this now defines my life. The way, the, the, the pathway of being obedient to God now defines who I am. And I, I walk that way as an athlete, as a businessman, as a mother, as a, as a son, as a daughter. I, I, I do that, but I, I do that as a follower of the way. I'm, I'm a woman who's, who's in the workplace here, but I'm doing it as a follower of the way. I'm a, I'm a child who's uh, uh, involved in a, a team, I'm on a baseball team, but I'm, I'm doing that as a follower of the way. That's my ultimate identity. And we think about the first century understanding of discipleship. It's very helpful for us here. There's a, a master-servant, teacher-student type relationship here. The, the master defines our lives. As you proclaim the gospel to your friends, to your children, to the people in your Sunday school class, you don't present them with a message of the gospel that just requires a a tiny amount of agreement to be in. As you proclaim the gospel in your Sunday school class, don't make the gospel seem like a, a ticket to easy street. That's not what we're calling people to engage in. Don't sell people a cheap version 
of Christianity. Becoming a Christian isn't necessarily going to fix the problems that you have with your parents. Don't tell a person, look, become a Christian and it'll solve the problems that you have with your parents. Don't tell a person, look, become a Christian and it'll solve that marital conflict that you have in your marriage. Don't tell people, become a Christian and your financial difficulties are going to be over. In reality, your relationship with your parents may get far worse. Your situation at work may become far more terrible. Your relationship with with your spouse may enter times of of much more difficulty as you say, look, I'm going to follow Christ instead of making whatever other relationship is my ultimate priority. It may cost me much more financially to become a Christian than it did to not live as a Christian. The life of discipleship is a life of difficulty and hardship. Paul and Barnabas, what do they say as they they go back through the places they visited? They say, look, they say, to strengthen the souls of the disciples, verse 22, they encourage them to continue in the faith and the way and say, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of, of God. As you call a person to walk the path of discipleship, you do so saying, look, this path is a path that involves not just a couple of tribulations, not an occasional downtime, but it's through many tribulations and many difficulties as you continue to see the value of Christ and put all other things to the side, it's going to be a time of this, this time of, on earth, it's going to be a time of many tribulations. Don't sell people a cheap version of Christianity. And you say, well, well when does this end? Th- this time of difficulty, it's, it's tough. When does this end? I was talking to someone this morning. When's this COVID thing going to end? And, and Hey, I'm all for this time of difficulty ending, but, but here's the reality. That ends, it's not like easy time is next for an extended period. It, there's just going to be something else difficult. That, that's the Christian life. We're going to continue to enter times of tribulation and difficulty. We, know we, we rejoice in the times of peace. We rejoice whenever God gives us peaceful times, and, and that can't happen as well. But, but we recognize the life of discipleship, of continually saying, this world is nothing, and Christ is everything, that continues to bring with it difficulties. When does that enter? Well, what does the text tell us? It's through many tribulations we must do what? Enter the kingdom of God. And until the kingdom of God has fully arrived, what can we expect? Tribulation. Don't sell people a cheap version of Christianity. To strengthen the souls of the saints, we need to be honest about the reality of what it means to follow the Lord. And you and I need to be involved in the difficult ministry of strengthening the souls of one another. You know, at at Bethany Community Church, to to kind of help people understand what it looks like to to live the Christian life of discipleship, we kind of have the the three M's, membership, maturity, and multiplication. We encourage every person to be involved in in membership, of of committing to the lives of one another, to to say, I'm going to be committed to strengthening the souls of the saints. We also encourage people to be involved in maturity, to to be growing in their faith and understanding what it means to live the Christian life. To be involved in care groups, we'll be talking about that. To be involved in serving in children's church. I mentioned that there's a sign-up for children's ministries in the foyer. If you want to apply the sermon really quickly, do that this morning. You look at verse 
22 here, and it's interesting. Verse 22 is in direct parallel, I think, to verse 2. It says in verse 22, they're strengthening the souls. Verse 2 says the unbelieving Jews had stirred up the Gentiles and were poisoning their minds. That word for minds, suke, is the same word as souls in verse 22. It's whereas the Jews were poisoning the minds, the souls, what are Paul and Barnabas doing? They're strengthening the souls. That's what a minister of the gospel does. So one, we present a biblical view of the Christian life and of discipleship. Number two, Number two, we provide shepherds who will care for their souls. We recognize that the Christian life is not meant to be lived in isolation. And we do this ministry in the context of the local church, local church ministers involved in, in caring for one another. You notice that the ministry that takes place is in the context of the local church. There's a plurality of elders. We'll talk more about that in a few months. And then it's also here in the context of, another important thing to, to note here, it's in the context of people who love them. Uh, these shepherds are those who are intimately involved in their life. These, these pastors, these elders, by the way, that those, those terms are, are synonymous, pastor, elder, shepherd. They're not those who are remotely removed from their lives. They're not these personalities that just kind of appear up on a stage. They're people who are intimately connected with their lives. Paul would say this about the people he ministered to in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 9. You remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that, you might, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. You know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you to walk, sorry, encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you in his own kingdom and glory. Earlier, verse 8, affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, our own selves, because you, Paul says to the people he's ministering to, because you had become very dear to us. The life of, of discipleship, of strengthening the souls of, of the saints, it, it begins by presenting a biblical view of the Christian life of discipleship, of what it means to live a life of faith in Jesus Christ. It also means living in the context of the local church which includes shepherds who are going to care for the souls of the people that God has entrusted to them. And the third thing we see about discipleship here and entrusting people to the care of the, the great shepherd, we, we entrust them to the care of God. It says in verse 23, we've talked about this already this morning, as they, as they prepare to leave, as they prepare to leave them in these hard locations, they commit them with prayer and fasting to the Lord in whom they believed. Let me just say a few words here about verses 26 through 28 as we prepare to close here. Look, look what happens as we finish the, the missionary journey. They sail back to Antioch, verse 26, don't they? What had, what had happened in Antioch? That's where they had been sent from as the missionary journey began. So now they return. It's a place that they've been commended to the grace of God. And what does it say about their work? It's work that they had fulfilled. 
not distracted by abuse, not distracted by persecution, not distracted by a bunch of people trying to offer them sacrifices, not distracted from being stoned and left for dead. They continue the ministry that had been entrusted to them, and now it's a ministry that's fulfilled as they've strengthened and established believers in their faith. They gathered the church together, and they declared all the amazing thing they had done. No, they declared all that God had done with them, and how God had now opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Now the, 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 the nations are going to be brought into relationship and worship with God as praises are given to God and his great name. That's the completion of the ministry. And they remained there in Antioch, no little time with the disciples. By the way, that no little time with the disciples, that's probably where Paul would, would write the book of Galatians. We'll talk about that more as we look at things next week. The work of the ministry is about to come under attack. This, this gospel message is about to come under significant attack. What's going to happen? The saints are going to stand. The gospel is going to be preserved by God's grace. The mission will continue. Our ultimate goal as ministers of the gospel is not to avoid abuse, not to pursue praise, but instead to strengthen the souls of the saints. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your good news, your, your gospel. We thank you for the truths that we've considered here together this morning. And Father, we, we pray that you would help our, our hearts to remain steadfast in you, distracted neither by the abuse or the praise of, of people, not not making the, the, the praise and the approval of men and women our ultimate goal, but instead to be found faithful before you, to hear you say the words, well done, well done, my good and faithful servant, not because of the things we were able to do, because of the work of Christ, your Son, and Spirit within us. We pray this in your name, giving you all the glory. In the name of your Son, Jesus, amen. Amen.